Parshas Vayelech is the third to last parsha in the Torah. It is also the shortest parsha in the Torah with only 30 verses, and it contains the final two of the 613 mitzvos of the Torah. And we're right now on the final day of Moshe's life, and this parsha and the two that follow are going to detail what happens on this very important day. The parsha begins, Moses went and spoke these words to all of Israel. He said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in, for Hashem has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. Hashem your God, he will cross before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall possess them. Joshua, he shall cross over before you, as Hashem had spoken. The Rabban explains that Moses was about to part from the nation, and therefore all the meetings, all the gatherings that happened in last week's parasha were done in Moses' home turf, i.e. in the Levite camp. But now he's about to take leave from the nation, and therefore he travels, he goes, he went to the Israelite camp to honor them and to part from them with honor. Like you have someone who goes to visit their friend, and then they're about to leave. So when they take leave, they go visit their host, and they ask for permission, so to speak, to be able to leave. Similarly, Moses is about to leave the nation and therefore he goes over to them, he goes to their home and he gives over his final message and he asks, so to speak, for permission to leave. Now, we find out that he's 120 years old to the day. He was born on the seventh day of Adar and he is going to pass away on that very same day, 120 years later. And the Talmud tells us that God ensures that the righteous, they live out their years and their months and the days, and therefore the righteous people, they actually pass away on their birthday. And in fact, it's a pattern in the Torah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're all passing away on their birthday. And I think the simple understanding behind this is that the people who are righteous at this caliber, they're so perfect, and thus the perfection is even reflected in their years and the time that they get a lot in this world, they maximize everything and thus they're given a certain amount of years and they fulfill those years to completion. But maybe on a little bit of a deeper level, we know that Talmud tells us that people are allotted a certain amount of time to live on this earth, but they could lose days, years, and months as a result of sin. And maybe we can even speculate the Talmud tells us that of the 613 mitzvot in the Torah, 248 of them are positive mitzvot, i.e. the Torah telling us what we must do, and 365 of them are negative mitzvot, prohibitions, restrictions, transgressions, what we should not do. And the Talmud tells us that these numbers are not random. The 248 positive mitzvot correspond to the amount of limbs and organs that you have in your body, and the 365 negative mitzvot correspond to the amount of sinews, muscles, tendons that you have in your body. And the idea being that when someone does all 613 mitzvot, when they achieve completion in the spiritual guidelines of the Torah, then they're upgrading, so to speak, their spiritual avatar, so to speak, the spiritual replica of their body, just like their body has 613 parts, so too their soul has 613 parts, and they achieve perfection in all aspects. They become well-rounded as a spiritual entity, and thus as a result of that, that spiritual entity can have continuity even after they die. It's a very advanced idea, but it's 
ubiquitous in, in Jewish philosophy. Now, the Talmud tells us another point. The Talmud says that the 365 negative mitzvos correspond to the amount of days in the year. Each day in the year, in the solar year, has a mitzvah that corresponds to it, and thus a full year, a full 365-day calendar year, will correspond to all the negative mitzvos in the Torah. Maybe we could speculate. You know, the Talmud is clear that not only does someone who is righteous, they live out the months of the year, but they don't miss out a single day. Maybe we could speculate that the connection is that when someone is righteous, they don't do any of the sins, and thus they don't have any of those 365 days deducted from the year and the yearly total that they are assigned. Perhaps people are assigned a certain amount of years, and if they don't devolve into the ways of sin then invariably they'll die on their birthday because there's not going to be any of the 365 sins that are going to diminish from the 365 days of the years that they are allotted. Now, Moshe is no longer the leader of the people. He tells the nation, I can no longer go out and come in. I can't be the leader because Hashem said to me, you're not going to cross. You're not going to be the leader. Now it's going to be given over to Joshua. Rashi tells us, that this does not mean that Moshe, he began to atrophy, he began to weaken. No, he was still as sharp as he was on day one, but he no longer had the permission, he no longer had the mandate from God that you're the leader, it was taken away from him, and it was given to Joshua. And I think this is a definition of Jewish leadership. To be the leader, you have to be appointed by God. Moses was appointed by God, and thus he became the leader, and thus he had that mandate, and now, on the final day of his life, God takes away that mandate and hands it over to Joshua, even in Moses' lifetime. And of course, there's many examples of this throughout Jewish literature. Maybe a great example of this is Samuel and Saul. Saul's the first king of Israel, and Samuel the prophet anoints him. He pours the oil in his head and says, you're the king of Jewish people. God decided you're the king. But then Saul sinned, and... God tells Samuel, okay, we have to find a new king. Saul is still on the throne. Saul is still nominally, titularly the head of the Jewish people. He is still the monarch. But in God's eyes, Saul is no longer the monarch. He's been deposed by God. Yes, the people may think he's king, but God recognizes that he's not. And of course, Samuel goes and finds a successor, and that is David. So we have this period where the people... And Saul himself, they assume that Saul is the king, but of course, in truth, in reality, that reign has been given over to David. If you ask the people over here on the day of Moses' passing, who's the leader of the Jewish people? They probably would have said Moses. He's been the leader yesterday. He's been the leader for 40 years. And why would that change? And here Moses is revealing to us and revealing to them that no, I am no longer the leader. That has been taken away from me and been handed over to Joshua. And I would say, maybe on a, on a broader point, this does not only apply to the leader of the Jewish people to be the king. This applies to any position of authority, any position of leadership, any role that a person plays. We believe that that stems from God manipulating the events to ensure that they're assigned to a certain role. We believe that the Almighty placed us on this planet to achieve a certain goal. We're here on a mission. 
We don't know what the mission is necessarily. We could try to guess, and you would guess by looking at the various tools that the Amari gave you, because the tools are going to be tailored. They're going to parallel mirror the particular message, the particular mission that you are entrusted with. But we also believe that the Amari is going to manipulate the events and the circumstances of your life to ensure that you're given ample opportunity to take whatever mission is that you were given. Of course, some people have a much bigger mission. Some have a smaller mission. But everyone has a responsibility that they have to do. And we believe that the Almighty is there putting his proverbial thumb in the scale and ensuring that every person is directed to whatever mission, whatever responsibility, whatever requirement they need to do, making sure that the path is paved for them. We say every morning, a blessing to God, who prepares... The footsteps of man. We're here in a mission. We're here to accomplish something in our journey. And the Almighty prepares our footsteps to ensure that whatever it is that we're supposed to accomplish, we are given all the tools and all the circumstances to do that. Moshe was the leader. And now God says, okay, you've done your mission. The leadership mandate's been taken away. And now it belongs to Joshua. And he tells them also that I'm 120 years old today. So simply put, what that means is that he's going to pass away today, and therefore he's no longer the leader. There's an interesting Ramban here. The Ramban tells us that there's a connection between his age, his advanced age, and his decline in leadership. The Ramban explains that what Moshe is telling the Jewish people, I'm 120 years old today. He's comforting them by telling them, I'm old. I'm less useful than it was before. I've done my share. My prime is behind me. I'm not useful anymore as a leader. And then he reminds them, even when I was the leader, quote unquote, even when I was at the helm leading the people, in truth, it was God who was really leading you. God was really the leader. I was just the emissary. And therefore, you should be comforted to know that you're in good hands after I pass I think this is a very interesting Ramban. It's a very pragmatic idea. You know, we think of the Jewish people, they're surrounded by prophecy, they're surrounded by miracles. And the Ramban's explaining, you know, they have this leader who's been tending to them like a mother tends to a child, to a suckling infant for 40 years. And quite naturally, they're terrified. What's going to be with us? Yes, of course, Joshua is a worthy successor, but is he a successor to Moses? How, who could replace Moses, who could possibly fill those shoes? And Moses is comforting them. He says, I'm, I'm old. I'm not in my prime anymore. Don't worry about it. You'll be okay. The Almighty who was with me, who made my leadership reign so successful, he'll be with Joshua. Don't worry. You'll be in good hands. And there's another interesting Rashi here. Rashi tells us, that Moses actually forgot the Torah and that's why he was disabled as a leader. It's a very puzzling idea here. Rashi is telling us that the wellsprings of Torah and wisdom and insight were closed up, were sealed up from Moses. It's a little bit troubling. You know, Moses, the greatest man that ever lived, the greatest leader we've ever had, And here we find out that on the last day of his life, he cannot be the leader anymore. He's been disabled. He's been disqualified as a leader 
because he forgot the Torah. What did Moses do to warrant such a punishment, so to speak, to lose access to the Torah? We don't see any sin that he did now that would warrant such punishment. Why indeed did Moses forget the Torah or were the wellsprings of Torah closed up to him? So there's an interesting Ramban here. Ramban quotes this uh, this Talmud that Rashi quotes as well. And he adds that this was a miracle. Miraculously, the wellsprings of wisdom that were open to Moses were closed up. Why was there a need for such a miracle? So that he would not object to the leadership being transferred over to Joshua. He wouldn't be worried. He wouldn't be concerned. He wouldn't think that he had a greater aptitude to lead the nation more than Joshua? No. He is reminded of his own feebleness, of his own weakness, by having the wellsprings of Torah closed up before him, and now he can feel more comfortable, more at ease, giving over the reign to Joshua. Now, if you read the Talmud that Rashi and the Ramban quote, if you read it quite critically, you'll notice a very deep point. It doesn't say that Moses was rendered incapable of Torah. Rather, what it says is that the wellsprings of wisdom themselves were closed up. It's not like Moses, his receptors were rendered dysfunctional. The wellsprings themselves, the Torah itself dried up. They were closed up. Moses was exactly the same way he was previous identical to the way he was yesterday, open, wide, ready for Torah, but the wellsprings of Torah themselves dried up. They closed up for him. Now, Moses in the Midrash is compared to an oceanside cave. And the way the Midrash explains that if you have a cave right next to the ocean and the ocean rises a little bit, invariably, the cave will be filled up with water when the tide rises. Moses remained this oceanside cave, this open heart to absorb Torah, but the waters miraculously, they closed up themselves in order to clear the way for Joshua. And again, Moshe is comforting the nation. God, he will cross over before you. He always was the leader and he's going to be the leader even in the future. He's going to destroy these nations before you. You're going to possess them. You'll have another leader. Joshua, he shall cross over before you as Hashem had spoken. Again, he's reminding them that when he was the leader, the figurehead, so to speak, it was truly God who was in charge. He was God's emissary. God was the leader. And now that Joshua is taking over, he too is going to be an emissary of God, and therefore there is no need to worry. Hashem will do to them, as did the Sichon and Og, all the Kings on the east bank of the Jordan were vanquished by God. That will happen to the kings on the west bank of the Jordan as well. Don't be scared. Be courageous. Be strong. Don't be afraid. Don't be broken. For Hashem, your God, it is he who goes before you. He will not release you, nor will he forsake you. That's the very powerful message that Moshe shares to the nation. And then he calls over Joshua. Moshe summoned Joshua. And said to him, before the eyes of all of Israel, everyone's witnessing this transfer of power between Moses to Joshua. And he tells him, be strong and courageous, for you shall come with this people 
to the land that Hashem swore to their forefathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. Hashem, it is He who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not release you, nor will He forsake you. Don't be afraid, and don't be dismayed. Just as the nation needed to be comforted with the passing of Moses, Joshua too had to know that he has the goods, he has the ability, because God will be with him. Don't be afraid to take on this tremendous responsibility of leading the nation into the land, conquering it. Don't be afraid. God will be with you. He won't forsake you. He won't release you. You'll be okay. There's a very interesting Rashi here. Rashi tells us, reading the verse very critically, it says, for you shall come with this people to the land that Hashem swore to their forefathers. You're going to be the leader, but you're going to come with the people. Whereas in verse 23, so in a few verses, there's going to be a dialogue between God and Joshua, and God will tell Joshua a very similar message, but he doesn't say, you shall come with the people. He says to him, you shall bring the people into the land. And Rashi tells us that there's a little bit of a disagreement between God and Moses regarding the leadership structure of Joshua. Moses told Joshua, you're going to come with the people. What Moses is in effect telling Joshua, you're going to have lieutenants. You're going to have the elders of the generation. They're going to be with you. Follow their advice. Heed their counsel. And therefore, you'll come with them. You're not going to be the only leader. You're going to be with everyone else. It's going to be almost a leadership by committee or by consensus. That's what Moshe told Joshua. Whereas God, God tells Joshua, you're going to bring them. You're going to be the leader. If they don't want to come, you hit them over the head. There's only one leader. There's only one spokesman for the nation, for the generation, and there aren't two. It's not going to be a leadership by committee, by consensus, you and the elders. No, it's going to be an autocracy. You're in charge, you alone, and there is no one else with you. You're the sole leader. And the commentaries explain that Moses and God really are not arguing. Really, these two mandates are complementary. Moses is advising Joshua to seek their guidance, to seek the advice, to seek the counsel of the elders. And God reminds him, ultimately, you are the sole leader of the nation. You have to make the final call. Moses wrote this Torah and gave it to the Kohanim, to the Levites, to the bearers of the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem, and to all the elders of Israel. Moses is now giving out written copies of the Torah. He begins initially by giving a copy of the Torah to the Levites. The Ramban stresses that this is a copy of the entire Torah from the first word of Genesis to the final word, to the eyes of all of Israel, the final words of Deuteronomy. And the Midrash describes how the rest of the tribes, they started complaining, why is Moses giving to the members of the Levites? What about us? And ultimately, Moses gave one scroll to each tribe, a total of 13 scrolls that were written on the final day of his life. Now, incidentally, these scrolls were used as the scroll from which all other scrolls were copied. So if you have a Torah scroll today, it's a copy of 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 one of those scrolls that Moses wrote on the final day of his life. And then Moses commands the nation with the first mitzvah of the two we're going to read about in this parsha. 
and that's the mitzvah of Hakel. That's the mitzvah where at the end of a Shemitah cycle, so at the end of a seven-year cycle, on the second day of Sukkot, the first intermediate day, the whole nation gathers in Jerusalem or wherever the capital, the epicenter of the Jewish people is, and the king, he takes the Torah and he reads many parts of Deuteronomy to the whole nation. Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of the seven years, at the time of the sabbatical year, during the circus festival, when all Israel comes to appear before Hashem, your God, in the place that he will choose, you shall read this Torah before all of Israel in their ears. Gather together the people, the men, the women, and the small children, and your stranger who is in your cities, so that they will hear, and so they will learn, and so they shall fear Hashem, your God, and be careful to perform all the words of this Torah. And their children, who do not know, they shall hear and they shall learn to fear Hashem your God all the days that you live in the land to which you are crossing the Jordan to possess it. So this is the mitzvah of Hakel, the whole nation gathering together, a momentous gathering, a momentous festival, and it's done once every seven years. The king reads the book of Deuteronomy, or much of the book of Deuteronomy, in the temple on this first day of the intermediate days of the festival of Sukkot. Now the Rambam, in the laws of Chagiga, he gives us some more details about how this was done. On the night following the first festival day of Sukkot, so that's the eve of the second day of the first intermediate day, the beginning of the intermediate days of the eighth year of a Shemitah cycle, the king reads in the ears of the whole nation. It is done in one particular chamber of the temple, and he would read from the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy until the end of the first paragraph of the Shema, which is in chapter 6, and then he skips to chapter 11 and reads the second paragraph of the Shema, and then he skips to chapter 14 and reads from chapter 14, verse 22, all the way through chapter 28, verse 69, which is the end of the admonition the portion that reminds us of the consequences of forgetting the Torah, disobeying it, and going astray. How would they do it? So the Ram tells us they would take trumpets and they would blow the trumpets to herald this momentous ceremony throughout the whole Jerusalem. And that way everyone would gather and they would bring a large pedestal of wood and they would make it right in the middle, right in the center of this particular chamber of the temple. And the king would ascend and sit on that pedestal so that way everyone should hear when he reads from the Torah and all the people who joined the pilgrimage who are in Jerusalem for the festival, they could gather around and listen. And then you would have the chazan, the crier of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Court. He would take the Torah scroll and he would hand it to the chief justice. And the chief justice would hand it to the vice high priest. And the vice high priest would give it to the high priest. And the high priest would give it to the king. And that was done in order to augment the splendor and the glory of Torah and of this process in the eyes of the onlookers. The king would accept the Torah and he had the option to stand or to sit when he read it, but it would be better if he would stand. He makes the blessing, and he reads these portions, and when he's done, and he rolls up the Torah, 
he makes the blessings that you say after you got an aliyah, after you read from the Torah, and he adds seven special blessings after he is done. And the rationale for this mitzvah that Sefer Chinuch tells us is very powerful. What he tells us is that the essence of our nation is Torah. What distinguishes our nation from any other nation? Why do we merit to have the close connection with God? The stamped ticket to the afterlife, to eternity? Why do we have this distinction? It's because of Torah. And therefore, because this is the essence of our nation, it is appropriate that we gather together once in a while, once maybe every seven years, to go hear it, to hear what the Torah says, so that the words of Torah should be heard throughout the whole nation, the men, the women, the children. Everyone should say, Wow, what are we doing here? What are the, what is the meaning behind this amazing get together? And the answer is going to be, we came to hear the Torah. This is our essence. This is our splendor. This is what makes us special. And as a result of that, everyone's going to praise the greatness of Torah and its value and its glory and will insert in their heart a desire to study. And with that desire to study, they're going to connect to God and they will merit the goodness. It's such a momentous festival of Torah that it's going to instill and ingrain within the hearts of everyone who participates a tremendous love and connection to God and to his Torah. And Rashi, quoting from our sages in the Talmud, points out that the men, of course, come. They come to study. The women come as well. Even though they're not obligated to study Torah, they come to listen, to participate. But what about the small children? Why do you bring the small children to this grand ceremony of Hakel? Says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, book of Hadidah, page 3b, to give reward to those who bring them. Indeed, the children themselves, they don't understand what's going on. They don't have the intellect, the insight, the wisdom, the knowledge to be able to really absorb what's happening here. But you know what? There is merit to those who bring them, and therefore, that's why the children participate in this ceremony. The Ramban, he adds another point. He says, yes, the children won't understand the content of what the king is reading of the book of Deuteronomy. However, they will notice that something is amiss, and they'll start asking questions, and they'll start probing, and it will implant in their heart something very special happened here. And when they get older, it'll trickle in. The message will be digested and absorbed and they will gain tremendous benefit from being privy to this amazing experience. Maybe we could even add, you know, you go to a sports game and you see babies with little micro jerseys and little ear protectors and the parents from a very early age are trying to instill within them a love for their team. We have this idea of multi-generational sports fans. The idea of ingraining a love for a certain team or certain sport into a child when they're young. Even though they don't understand the rules of the game, they don't understand what it means and why does this team have blue jerseys and this team have green ones. It doesn't, it doesn't register to them. But from a very early age, when they're beginning to form as, as a being, as a person, 
you already instill with him a love for whatever it is that you truly cherish. And we truly cherish Torah. And therefore, the children, they don't understand what's happening, but they have to be there at this momentous gathering. And in addition, I read an amazing insight from Rabbi Rucham about the power of trying to influence someone, both positively and negatively. There is a law in the Torah that talks about someone who tries to influence someone to do idolatry. And this is one of the worst things you could do, try to influence someone to do idolatry, to influence someone to follow the ways of the pagans and to deviate away from God. And this person is treated the most harshly of any sinner in the Torah. Even worse than someone who actually does idolatry is someone who tries to influence others to go do idolatry. And importantly, even if their influence does not bear fruit, even if the person is not convinced, does not follow the ways of the idolaters, nevertheless, the person who tried to instigate that, the person who tried to entice someone else to follow the, idol- the idolatry, that person is treated very harshly and it's a capital offense. And we know that whatever God does harshly, whatever punishment that God dispenses, the reward for the parallel deed is always amplified 500 times. So for example, God punishes sinners up to four generations, and thus we know that God rewards the righteous up to 2,000 generations. Why? Because it's 500 times greater the reward than the punishment. And here we see an amazing idea. Someone tries to influence someone negatively. They're treated very harshly. We're told not to have pity on them and not to have mercy on them. And we don't try to find acquittal and exculpation for them. They did something so horrific, so unconscionable, so inexcusable that there's no mercy for them. There's no pity for them. Even if their attempts at influencing bore no fruit... Still, they're treated very harshly. Well, what if someone tries to influence someone else for the positive? Well, you would say that to the degree that someone tries to influence someone negatively is punished severely, 500 times greater than that if someone tries to influence someone else positively. And you know what? Just as when someone tries to influence someone negatively, They're treated very harshly regardless of whether or not their influence was successful. Similarly, we would say that when someone tries to influence someone positively, even if their efforts were inefficacious, nevertheless, they are rewarded very handsomely 500 times more than the negative person is punished. The person tries to influence positively is reward, even if the person is not influenced. You bring a child, you bring him to the temple, you bring him to participate in this once every seven year celebration of Torah, of remembering what we stand for as a nation. The child, not influenced. They're too small, they're too young, they're too undeveloped to be able to recognize what's happening here. But you know what? Bring the children anyhow. And why, says the Talmud, to give reward to those who bring them. You try to influence them positively, even if it does not yield fruit, you're going to have tremendous reward because
because you tried to influence someone positively. And I think this is more broadly speaking, today we don't have Hakel because we don't have a temple. Please God, it'll be built speedily. We're about to have the celebration together on the first day of the intermediate days of every seventh year of the cycle. But the principle remains that if we try to influence others, even if, you know, they're sinners and they're not impressionable and we try to influence them, it doesn't work and we try harder and nothing actually penetrates, they're not taking home the message, they're not absorbing the lessons and we feel like we've done nothing. We feel like our efforts are for naught. We feel like we wasted our time. And here we see the power of attempting to influence someone. Even if it doesn't yield fruit, it's the most powerful thing you could do because you're trying to influence someone to the good. And we know that influencing someone or trying to influence someone for the bad is the worst thing. And thus, 500 times greater than that is the reward for trying. Even if you're only trying to influence someone for the positive. What a powerful insight from Rabbi Rucham about this idea. And then Moses is instructed to summon Joshua and both of them to come together to the tent of meeting. And God tells Moses, I'm going to instruct him. There's going to be a transfer here, a visceral, vivid illustration of the fact that the leadership has been handed over from Moses to Joshua. Both of them are going to go to the tent of meeting, the place where Moses usually speaks to God, and God's going to speak to Joshua. So Moses and Joshua, they went, they stood at the tent of meeting, God appeared to them, and he spoke to them, and he gave them some troubling predictions. Hashem said to Moses, behold, you're going to die. And the people will forsake me. They're going to annul the covenant that I sealed with them. I'm going to get angry at them. I'm going to forsake them. I'm going to conceal my face from them. They'll become prey, many evils and distresses they'll encounter, but then they're going to repent. They're going to say, is it not because God is not in my midst that all these evils have become upon me? But I will surely have concealed my face on that day because of all the evil that it did, for it had turned to the gods of others. So there's a few interesting things here. First of all, the idea of God covering his eyes, and as a result of that, the people getting punished. So on a technical level, what this means is that God's not going to actively punish them. He's going to passively punish them, so to speak, by withholding his eyes. What that means is that without God intervening, without God actively ensuring that things are okay for us, the default is that we're suffering. It's only because God looks at us, so to speak. He shines his visage at us. He looks at us with his countenance. He cares about us. He takes an interest in us. And he takes steps to make sure that things go well for us. That's the only way that we can avoid suffering. But God says, you know what? In the event that they turn away from me, I will respond in kind. I will turn away from them. And to the degree that the nation turns away from me, I will turn away from them. And the further I am, so to speak, facing away from them, the more they're on their own and the more vulnerable they are. And what happens? All kinds of evils and distresses will encounter it, not because of me on an active way, but because of me on a passive way, because I'm not going to be there to thwart, to swat away, 
the dangers and the suffering and the pain that I would have if I was facing them. And it's interesting. Even after the nation seems like they're repenting, they're going to say, this is verse 17, it will say on that day, is it not because my God is not in my midst that all these evils have come upon me? They're going to take the message. They're going to recognize that the reason why they're being punished is because God's not with them. Yet you read verse 18, but I will surely have concealed my face on that day because of all of the evil that it did. So the Rabban asks the question, he says, wait a minute. Even after they repented in verse 17, it seems like they're still being punished in verse 18. So the Rabban tells us that this is an incomplete repentance. They're only showing regret. They're only acknowledging that they're guilty, but they're not truly repenting and therefore God does not fully reveals face them, they're still vulnerable. The Hasidic masters, they say that actually in verse 17, not only is this not an incomplete repentance, there's something wrong with this message. They say, the Jewish people say, after they suffer, is it not because my God is not in my midst that all these evils have come upon me? We have to realize, as a nation, God is always with us even when we're suffering. In fact, the verse tells us in Psalms 91, God is with us when we're suffering. Similarly, the verse in Psalm tells us, even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to be scared because you are with me. What happens when someone fails to recognize that? They say, God is not in my midst. When they do that, that in itself, not only is not an incomplete repentance, it's a sin because they are failing to recognize the essence of our nation, that our nation, no matter how far we may be from God, God is still with us and he wants to hear from us and he wants to turn his face towards us and to treat us with the pleasant countenance of God, with his caring, with his love, with his compassion for our nation. After God conveys this message to Moses and to Joshua, he instructs them to write down this song. This is going to be the third song that we encounter in the Torah. Of course, there was the song at the sea. There was the song of Miriam in the book of Numbers. And now we're going to have the final song, the song that's going to encompass much of Netsuit's Parsha, the song of Hazinu, which is going to be an overview of Jewish history, like a condensed version of all the good things that will happen to us and all the bad things that will, that will happen to us, depending upon which of the two paths that are laid out before us, we choose to go down. So now God tells Moses and Aaron, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel, place it in their mouth so that this song shall be for me a witness against the Jewish people. This song is going to serve testimony that the Jewish people knew exactly what they were getting into when they accepted this relationship with God, and therefore the song itself is going to be a witness against the Jewish people in the event that they stray and they're punished. They cannot say, we weren't warned, we have the song here to serve as testimony for. And of course, the song, we're not going to read this week, we're going to read it next week. Now, in addition, the Talmud tells us that this verse, verse 19 is actually the source of the final mitzvah of the Torah, and that is to write a Torah scroll. 
So even though God ostensibly is speaking to Moses and Joshua to write down this song, really he's speaking to us as well to write down the song of Ha'azinu, which is part of the Torah, and ergo we know that we're supposed to write down the whole Torah. Each one of us should have a copy of the Torah. If it's a whole Torah scroll, that would be great. Otherwise, at a minimum, we should have a copy of the Chumash, a copy of the Pentateuch, a copy of the five books of Moses to be able to fulfill this mitzvah. And the Ram tells us, the way he explains this, this verse is that it's telling us to write down the song, and the song, of course, is part of the whole Torah, and you can't just write one portion of the Torah, and therefore you have to write the whole Torah. Now, the commentators ask the obvious question. Maybe the mitzvah is for us to write down just this song, just the song of Hazin, the song that we're going to read next week. How does the Rambam know, how does the Talmud know that we're supposed to write the entire Torah that has within it the song as well? You have a mezuzah. Mezuzah on every Jewish doorpost has within it a section of the Torah. And it's just one section, the first two paragraphs of the Shema, and it doesn't have the rest of the Torah. So we see, obviously, a precedent for the fact that you don't need to write the whole Torah every time you write one portion of the Torah. Similarly with tefillin. In the tefillin, there's the tefillin of the head have, has four compartments that each one of them has a scroll that contains within it a portion of the Torah. And the one on the arm is one scroll that contains those four portions. But again, that's evidence that you don't need to write the whole Torah, just those portions. So maybe this mitzvah of writing down the song includes only the song. So there's many answers to this question. I saw one answer in particular, that the song is supposed to act as a witness upon the Jewish people, to serve as a description of the consequences for their errant behavior. And therefore, if you just have the song, and you don't have the rest of the Torah, it won't be a very useful witness because the song itself is exhorting us to not disobey the Torah. And if we just have the song, we don't know what the Torah is. If that's not part of the evidence, if that's not in evidence, then the song is almost defanged as a witness. And consequently, we have to have it all. Now, in addition, this verse is a very interesting verse. The commentaries note that this is a shift in how the Torah was given. Read the verse again, verse 19. So now write this song and teach it to the children of Israel. So what happens first? First you write it, and only subsequently you teach it. We know that here Moses, at the end of his life, he's going to give the Jewish people copies of the Torah. But for the preceding 40 years, Moshe was teaching the Jewish people Torah, but he wasn't giving them written versions of it. And even though the Talmud in the book of Gittin, page 60a, has two opinions as to how the written Torah was written. Was it written in you know piecemeal, piece by piece, or was it written all at the end? I.e. at the end of Moses' life, at the end of Deuteronomy, he wrote the whole thing. But regardless, everyone agrees the Jewish people did not get written copies of the Torah until the very end of Moses' life, the very end of the 40 years of the Jewish people's sojourn in the wilderness. So when they were studying Torah, they were studying Torah orally. Moshe was telling Jewish people what to do, and they were reviewing it, and this was all done orally. And only subsequently did they get it in the written version, the written Torah. And here we see that there's a change. Moshe is being told, write down and then teach. The format that we follow today, it's this format that we first read the written Torah and we try to extrapolate from the Torah to draw out from the Torah 
what the insights are. And of course, that's developed in, and explicated in the Talmud to obviously perfection. But again, here we see a shift. Previously, it was done oral and only subsequently written. And here it's going to be changed. And in fact, the commentaries note that the verse begins, so now, now, unlike previously, you're going to write the song and then you're going to teach it. And then God continues to tell Moses and Aaron, for I shall bring them to the land that I swore to the forefathers, which flows with milk and honey. They're going to turn away from God and go follow the gods of others. And it shall be that when many of the evils and the stresses come upon it, then this song that we're about to write, it's going to serve as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the mouth of its offspring, for I know its inclination, what it does today, before I bring them to the land that I have sworn. God is telling us, this is an idea that we've spoken about in the past, that the Torah will never be forgotten from the Jewish people. And Rashi tells us, behold, this is a promise to the Jewish people that they won't at least completely forget the Torah from their generations, from their descendants. However, as a means to ensure that the Torah will never be forgotten, we have this song which delineates the evils and the distresses that will befall the Jewish people in the event that they stray. That in itself, the consequences for our misbehavior is what's going to ensure that we're going to forever remain connected to the Torah. Moses wrote the song on that day and he taught it to the children of Israel. And like we said, it's been written. We haven't yet read in the Torah because now the format's changed. You write it and then you convey it. And then God commanded Joshua, the son of Nun. Again, this is the first time we have a conversation between God and Joshua. The handover of power. Joshua is now having direct communication with God. God tells him, be strong, be courageous. You're going to be the children of Israel to the land that I've sworn to give them. I shall be with you. So it was when Moshe finished writing the words of the Torah onto a book, all the way to its conclusion, the commentaries note that what this means is that Moshe wrote the entire Torah, including the two portions of the Torah, two parshas that we have not yet read. And he commanded the Levites, the bearers of the Ark, of the covenant of Hashem, and he tells them, take this book, take the Torah, and place it at the side of the Ark of the covenant of Hashem your God, and it shall be there for you as a witness. Rashi tells us, there's two different opinions. According to one, it was placed inside the ark itself, next to the tablets, both the ones that were broken and the ones that were not broken, the first and second set of tablets. Alternatively, there was a second opinion that it was placed upon a shelf that was outside of the ark, and it was placed over there next to other things that were kept for posterity, namely the vial of manna and the staff of Aaron that sprouted almonds. And in addition, the Midrash tells us, like we mentioned earlier, that Moshe wrote 13 copies, one for each tribe. The Midrash goes on to say that he gave one to each tribe and he spoke to them, spoke to the men, spoke to the women, and he reminded them of the messages of Deuteronomy. He warned them to abide by the dicta of Torah and he gave them the book, he gave them the scroll that they are going to use for their tribe for many generations to be the one that's handwritten by Moses, to be the one that they used to copy other Torah scrolls, but again, to serve as this testament of this 
rich tradition and transference of, of Torah from God to Moshe and Moshe to the Jewish people and so on and so forth from generation to generation. And finally, the Parsha ends where Moshe is going to gather the nation one more time and he makes the announcement, gather to me all the elders of your tribe, your officers, I want to speak to them the words of this song. I want to call heaven and earth to bear witness upon them. The commentaries explained, even though it's happened several times, that the heaven and earth were called as witness, but there it was to warn the Jewish people. Now it's, he's going to be speaking to the heaven and earth themselves. And Rashi explains that this gathering of the people, it was done manually without the trumpets. Previously, we've talked about the trumpets, how the trumpets were used to announce the gathering of the Jewish people together. And here, on the day of Moshe's passing, he no longer was able to use them. Even Joshua himself was not able to use them. They had to be put away. They had to be archived. They had to be buried. Because even Moshe himself, he no longer had that same power, that same authority that he had previously. And he gathers the nation and he tells them, for I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly you will stray from the path that I've commanded you. Evil will befall you at the end of days if you do what is evil in the eyes of Hashem to anger him throughout your handiwork. Rashi tells us a very powerful idea that Moshe is saying here, I know that after my death, you're going to act corruptly. Yet, Rashi tells us, that throughout the times of Joshua, they didn't act corruptly. Quotes a verse in the book of Judges. Jewish people worship God all the days of Joshua. So how can Moshe say, after I die, you're going to act corruptly, when it was only after Joshua died that they acted corruptly? And Rashi tells us, from this we know that someone loves their student as much as they love themselves. So long as Joshua was alive, Moshe felt that he was alive, and therefore when he's saying, after I die, in effect what he's saying, after Joshua dies, because Joshua is just an extension of me, he's my student that I love so much, he's my extension, after I die, i.e. after Joshua dies, we know that you're going to go astray, and therefore it's very important for you to hear the words of this song. Moses spoke the words of this song into the ears of the entire congregation of Israel until their conclusion. The content of that song that's going to serve as a witness for God, that's going to call the heaven and the earth to stand witness and bear testimony of these warnings and of these consequences of deviating away from God, that is going to be the subject of next week's Parsha, the penultimate Parsha of the Torah, Parsha's Ha'azinu. I hope you enjoyed this Parsha podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. Please email me, rabbiwolby.gmail.com. I look forward to speaking to you next week.